Well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for just a wonderful morning, 9 o'clock. Great time together in the Word of God. And uh, even before that, those who came to pray at 8.30, uh, just what a wonderful morning. The singing, the scripture, everything together has uh, oh, filled my mind with gratitude and praise to the Lord. So let's bow in prayer, and we'll begin now a study in the New Testament, um, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And so this morning we will uh, begin, begin our first of, of many studies in this wonderful text. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we come before you again asking for help and strength in this time of need as we come to the word of God. We're so thankful that your word is sufficient. It is able to meet all of the various needs here and all of the levels and areas of spirituality that we're all at, different circumstances, different issues of life, and yet your word is able to and powerful enough to come to our aid and rescue and sanctification. We pray now, Father, that as we come to the text, that we would believe, that we would believe it, we would hear it and listen to it, not like Judah in the days of Jeremiah that closed their ears and stopped up their ears and went their own way, but may we humble ourselves as we hear and listen and apply biblical truth to our lives. For we know then we will find peace and joy walking in your ways. So let your word accomplish its great work in our lives, and we pray to the glory of Jesus. Amen. So we have spent many months in the prophet Jeremiah with the um, condemnation against Judah and one thing after another, and finally the Babylonian army crashes through, and, and that's kind of where we left the book of Jeremiah. Now, as we turn to the New Testament, we come to four Gospels. And so I want to kind of set out to you what we see in the four Gospels as uh, we study the third of the Gospels, this, this Gospel of Luke. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. There are four records of the life of Jesus that has been given to us by inspiration of God. We have Matthew that pens the life story of Jesus. But like, almost like four camera angles of a movie scene, um, each of the four authors of the Gospels take a different look at the life of Jesus. They, they see things through a, a little different perspective, but they're all speaking absolute biblical truth. Matthew, as he writes, even from his genealogy onward, he portrays Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews. And so, so he's writing to the Jewish nation that they would identify and see that Jesus truly is the anticipated messianic king. And so you'll have Old Testament references, and a lot of times it will say, as was fulfilled, as was spoken by the, by the prophets. And there'll be a, a scripture, Old Testament text that Jesus fulfills, portraying him as the king of the Jewish nation. The book of Mark, as you read the book of the Gospel of Mark, you'll see the key word immediately, or with haste, over and over and over. Because Mark is writing to the Roman population, more or less, and he is portraying Jesus not as the king of the Jews, but as a suffering servant. And servants serve, and they do it with haste. And so you read the Gospel of Mark, and it's immediately Jesus went here. And with haste, he went here. And he did this, and he did that, and he went here. And, and the Romans would see that Jesus, as a victim of crucifixion, or as a crucified man, was, was really the foretold suffering servant of the Bible. And so that was Mark's perspective. Luke 
who we find as a physician, according to Colossians 4, verse 14, Paul writes and says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. And so Luke is a, is a doctor, a physical doctor, one who has given his life to the service of others in their physical health as well as spiritual health. He's writing more or less to the Greek population. And the Greeks, they had this view of the ideal man. What is the ideal man like in physique, in body, and in spirit, and in soul? And they just elevated the whole idea of the ideal man in the Greek culture. And Luke is writing to show that Jesus is truly the Son of Man. Perfect humanity filled with God, being fully God as well. So you'll see with Luke, medical terms all over the place. He is going to speak medical terms in all sorts of different medical language. You'll see him describe Jesus touching people and, and laying hands on them and eating with them and teaching them and talking with them. And there's so much about the humanity of Jesus. There's more about the, the physical birth of Jesus and John um, than, than any other gospel. You'll see um, more about the humanity of Jesus, where he walked, the conversations. He's, just everything that mankind does is really brought out in the life and record of Jesus, according to the Gospel of Luke. And then John. John is literally writing to the whole world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. And so John is writing to all the world that Jesus is truly the Son of God. He is truly fully deity. So we have this beautiful interwoven blend of the life of Jesus. Now, when I preach through the Gospel of Luke, we we will pretty much stick to this Gospel. The challenge for me in preaching this Gospel, I don't want to go too too fast, because then we'll miss some great nuggets and, and we'll miss some important truths. And there are some things we need to stop and delve into and study and bring out. But if I go too slowly, then you'll miss the whole, the whole flow of the narrative. And we'll get bogged down in one chapter for weeks and weeks. And, and then you'll lose the whole flavor of what Luke is trying to accomplish in recording the narrative of the life of Christ. So we'll go through each chapter and each verse. But I pray that you will, you will get the intended message as God desired Luke when Luke, when Luke wrote it. Um, Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we're so thankful for this text, and we now pray that you would enlighten our eyes and and help us to grasp in order the details of this opening chapter with the birth of John the baptizer. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at Luke chapter 1. The first four verses is one long Greek sentence. It is really the introduction to the whole book. And you think, what could you gain from an introduction? Look at this. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you in orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. That is one long sentence, but let's take a look and see what we can grasp and learn and apply from this text. Verse 1, Luke begins saying, inasmuch as many, look at the word many, 
as many, many people have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled amongst us. Do you know what this is telling me? That there is a fascination, there's, there's an excitement, and there's a passion about the life of Jesus. So many, many people are fascinated with what Jesus did, where he went, what he did, what he said. And so Luke is not the only one, Matthew's not the only one, Mark's not the only one, but many not just the four gospel writers, but many people wanted to set in order the details of the life of Jesus. Now, I was recently down with Melissa visiting my sister in Springfield, Missouri. We went to a Civil War battlefield, and I had a four-volume set I've never opened in my, in my library on the Civil War, and I thought, yes, walking on a real Civil War battlefield, how exciting, and this is ex- I just want to learn all about the Civil War. And so I grabbed the four-volume set, and I opened to chapter one, and I could hardly get through the first chapter. I was like, who can read this? It is so dry and boring. And, and you know, because the, really the, the battlefield was exciting, but I guess I really don't really want to know all the fine details of every detail of the battles and all of this. So, so I put it aside, but not so with Jesus. I want you to know that Jesus is not just a set of doctrines. He's not just a set of behaviors. He's not just a protocol of do this in church and don't do this. Sometimes, and we need to hold fast to sound doctrine. We need to love the words of Scripture and the doctrine of Scripture and the, the justification, sanctification, glorification, propitiation. We need to know these wonderful theological terms and definitions. But we can never love those to the exclusion of loving the person of Jesus. Can you imagine if you asked me, how is your relationship with Melissa going? And I said, you know, the food is on the table, and and the floors are swept clean, and my laundry is done, and it's all folded and pressed and hung, and, and the gas is in my vehicle, and the windows are washed, and the bed is made, and oh, things are wonderful. You would look at me and say, well, that's crazy. You're making all this emphasis on these things, but... You have not yet once mentioned sitting down and looking at Melissa and talking with her and communicating and sharing your heart and hearing from her. And and sometimes we are so busy arguing about doctrine, and there is a place for the doctrinal things, of course. We have to have a solid, strong, biblical foundation. But sometimes we forget to just love Jesus. And here there are many who said, I, I just love Jesus, I want to write about him. We, we write about what we love, and so many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative. But here's what's part of the fascination about Jesus, is not just things that happened, it's not just things that Jesus did. Verse 1 says, things which have been fulfilled, prophetic events, things in the Old Testament that Jesus accomplished. He said he would be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. Let's write about that. What took place in Bethlehem? Where in Bethlehem? When in Bethlehem? Who in Bethlehem? Shepherds, angels. Exciting. Who doesn't want to write about things like that? The book of Isaiah said the Messiah, when he comes, would heal lame people. Would you not want to write a chapter about a lame person who has never been able to walk by the very words of Jesus, getting up with strong legs, picking up his bed, his, his cot, and walking away? Do, do you want to hear about people that have been blind from birth? And Jesus asking them to apply mud. Uh, he applies mud to their eyes and has them walk a distance to a pool and wash their eyes, and now they can see. And, and uh, a man who has a 12-year-old daughter 
a centurion who is uh, going to die and and uh, very very ill, and then the twelve year old dies and she's laid up on a bed, and then Jesus walks in with Peter, James, and John and and simply says, "Arise, little girl," and the little girl arises, just sits up on the bed. Is that not fascinating? That Jesus would fulfill all of these Old Testament prophecies. It's not just that he came and he did this and did that. He was fulfilling what the prophets had foretold thousands of years before. How he would suffer. How he would be treated by mankind, nailed to a cross, and rise from the dead. Oh, is that glorious? Look at verse 2. Just now, not only, so that's his introduction. He's fascinated with the, with the truth of Jesus Christ, the person and the work of Jesus. But look at verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. So there were 12 apostles that walked with Jesus. But we know according to Acts chapter 1, there were a multitude of women that followed Jesus for three years of his earthly ministry. Many women attending to his needs, preparing food, cooking over a fire, making sure that he had a place to sleep at night, making sure his clothes were clean, whatever. I mean, just ministering to his physical needs and to the disciples as they're walking around. Acts chapter 1, when they're trying to, de- to determine who would be the, the 12th apostle that would take Judas Iscariot's place after Judas died, they, they had the opportunity to select a man out of many that followed Jesus from the baptism of John, John's baptism, all the way until his resurrection. These 12 were not the only ones, but there was a, when Jesus traveled the countryside, he had a whole entourage with him. So there were many eyewitnesses. And Luke said, I'm going to tell you my method of writing the gospel. So do you want to know how Luke wrote this gospel that we're about to, to read and study verse by verse in the life of Jesus? He went and visited with eyewitnesses and ministers of the word of God. He went and saw those who walked, who saw Jesus, walked with him, talked with him, and they said, tell me about this. Tell me about this. I want to write this down. What happened? What did Jesus say? Where did he go? Was he standing? Was he sitting? Then what? And he, he just took copious notes of all of these eyewitnesses. Now, the Greek word for eyewitnesses, it's atoptai. Eyewitnesses are atoptai. Atoptai means, you get the word autopsy from it. And the word optic is in there. It's the idea of to see for oneself personally. No secondhand knowledge. This is, I was there, I heard the words of Jesus. I touched him. I held on to him. This happened. I saw him raise her from the dead. Eyewitnesses. They personally saw it for themselves. Autopti. And ministers. These, they're also identified as ministers. It's the word huperitai, which means an underrower of the boat. The ones who had the oars of a ship to move it. But in medical term, since Luke is a doctor, in medical terminology, it means an intern, a, one who comes along as a learner. Luke says, you want to know my method to write the gospel? I went and I tracked down eyewitnesses because I wanted accuracy. I want readability. I want accuracy in the gospel of Jesus. So I spoke, can you imagine him speaking to Mary, the mother of Jesus? Mary, those shepherds, Tell me everything about them. The, tell me everything about your flight to Egypt after Herod the Great was trying to kill all of the baby boys in, in Bethlehem. Can, 
He, he had many opportunities to do this over the course of his ministry with the Apostle Paul. So he went to, so literally he went to eyewitnesses. He went to those who walked as interns with Jesus, his followers, his learners. Now, the question you might want to ask is, if Luke does all of this work, he's making all of these notes, he's compiling everything on a, on a piece of parchment or whatever, does that negate the inspiration of Scripture? And the answer is no. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is breathed out by God. Now, how would God use all of Luke's eyewitness accounts and notes and everything? You could find that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, where it says that holy men of old were moved, that there's no private origin of, of the word of God. Luke didn't sit down one day after a pizza and say, Wow, I want to sketch out the life of a man named Jesus. And I just want to tell you, I'm going to make up and fabricate and exaggerate some stories about his, his, his life. And it doesn't come from his heart and origin. All scripture comes from the origin of God himself. And it says, holy men of old were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the idea of moved by the Holy Spirit, it means it's the same word used for wind of a sail, of a sail on a ship. When the, when the sail is hoisted, the wind can fill the sail, and then the wind pushes the ship to its desired destination. So as Luke has all of the eyewitness accounts, and he's written things and taken notes, now he's writing out the narrative of Jesus' life. It's not mechanical dictation, where Luke's just sitting around talking, and all of a sudden, wait, my arm, somebody's taking control of it, and he's sketching it out like somebody overcame him. It's, God is using his personality, all of his effort to find out the eyewitness accounts. And then as, as Luke begins to pen the narrative, the Holy Spirit fills him and moves him so that every sentence and every word is 100% accurate. God's word is inspired in all of its parts. So when we get to the genealogy in Luke 3, every single individual's name is right on it is not only true and inspired in all of its totality, but it's inspired in every single word, in its plural endings. There's a place where Jesus says, Peter, let down your nets, plural, and Peter lets down a net, singular, not full obedience. Even those plurals are inspired by God. And so as Luke is writing, the Holy Spirit is making sure that the, that the desired destination of 100% accuracy in the original writing is there. You can say without, without a doubt, with 100% assurance, this record of the life of Jesus is true. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. He's gone to great length with these eyewitnesses. Here's his purpose in writing. So we, we see the joy of his writing. He's passionately fascinated with the life of Jesus. So he's going to spend all of this time and energy in the life of Jesus. He wants accuracy. So he's using eyewitness accounts and, and the Holy Spirit is, is allowing and making sure every word and every sentence is exactly correct. But verse 3 gives his purpose. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you in orderly account. Luke is concerned about readability. He, not necessarily everything is chronological, 
but everything is in sequence so that when you read it, you get the full picture of the life and ministry of Jesus. You'll find that after the introductory chapters, Luke will spend some time in, in Jesus' Galilee ministry. So we'll be up north looking at Jesus' Galilee ministry. And then in Luke 9, verse 51, all of a sudden it's the hinge of the entire book. And Jesus is set to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. And from Luke 9, 51, all the way through, Luke's whole goal is, what is Jesus thinking and doing as he's heading to the cross in Jerusalem? And so... He's writing an orderly account. Who is he writing it to? Most excellent, Theophilus. Now, this is part one of a two-part series of Luke. Luke wrote this narrative for a man named Theophilus. It means lover of God. Theos being being God and phileo meaning a brotherly love. This is a, a man who is a lover of God. He appears to be a believer, yet he needs assurance that everything he knows about Jesus is true. He wants that assurance and needs it. So Luke is saying, Theophilus, when you finish reading this letter, you will know the certainty of the truth of Jesus, his love and grace on your behalf. Take your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 1. Here's the second volume. Luke writes also a second volume after the Gospel of Luke, and it's the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus. This would be the Gospel of Luke. The former account, the Gospel of Luke I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, that's what we're going to study in the Gospel, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had, whom he had chosen. And then he goes on and on with that. Now, uh, while you're in the book of Acts, since Luke is writing Acts, you'll find in chapters 1 through 15 that Luke is always saying these pronouns. They went here, they did that, they did that, he did that. It's always that type of pronoun. Now, go to Acts chapter 16. I'll show you something incredible about the, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. Paul is on his second missionary journey, and And Luke is writing, Paul went here, he did that, he said that. And Paul gets all the way to the Aegean Sea. His sandals are in Troas. He's right at the edge of the water, and he's like, now where do I go? And then he gets this vision of a man in Macedonia, and the man says, come and preach the gospel to us. And so as you look at chapter 16, verse 11, oh, let's go back to verse 10. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. In, in Acts 16, verse 10, Theophilus join, or Luke joins Paul's ministry team. And from this point on, Luke is, we did this, we went there, we experienced this. So now Luke is a companion and a traveler with Paul. He knows the gospel. He knows everything that Paul has been teaching. But now he's found eyewitnesses and interns of Jesus. And he writes the gospel of Luke to give assurance and certainty of what we believe. Back to the gospel of Luke, please. So there's a joy and a fascination in Jesus. There's accuracy and, and readability that we can know and trust. And the goal is... 
that we would not ever fall, that we would not totter, that we would always have assurance of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And now we begin in verse 5. There was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the the division of Avia. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. No sooner do we get past the introduction than we're given a historical setting. Luke is great about this. Luke, being a doctor, you know how they take notes and all of that. He's going to let us know the historical setting of many many things in the life of Jesus. In this case, it's the days of Herod. So you know what I like about Luke? He says this is the times that it happened, but nobody really cares about Herod. Notice he doesn't go on and describe Herod's life and Herod's kingdom or anything. He simply says these things happened in the days of Herod. It's the historical setting. The king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of and his and his wife Elizabeth. He says the days of Herod were the historical setting, but that's not what's significant in God's eyes. Do you want to know what was significant? An older couple, Zacharias, an older man, his wife Elizabeth, a woman who is barren, and they have no children. Now, Zacharias, his name means God remembers. And Elizabeth, Elisheva in the Hebrew, Elizabeth is a Hebrew name, it means God's covenant or his covenant. So if you put Zacharias and Elizabeth together, you get God remembers his covenant. Because as you open up the New Testament, people would have thought, did God forget? Did God forget his covenant with his people? And God is going to, from the, from the beginning of the New Testament, God is going to let everybody know, I remember my covenant to Abraham. And do you know what son that Zacharias and Elizabeth have? John. And John means grace. God remembers his covenant of grace. What a, what a family. So we really don't really care that much about Herod and his family, although we'll learn a lot about them in the book. What we really care about is this older couple who are priests. Um, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Avia. So in the days of Jesus, as he was being born here in this opening chapter, chapters 1 and 2, there were probably 20,000 priests in the hill country of Judea that would serve at one temple. That's a lot of people to have to work in one building, 20,000 priests. So David, a thousand years before, had divided up all the priesthood, because there are so many, into 24 divisions. And it happens that Abia was the father of the eighth division. So Abia is a descendant of Aaron, and his two children, great-great-great-great-grandchildren, are Elizabeth and Zacharias. They are part of the eighth order. And every priest would only serve two weeks a year. One early in the year or one time, and then another week at a different time of the year. So they would serve one week at a time, twice a year. So if there's 20,000 priests and there's 24 orders, then each order has about 800 or so people in it. And that's still way too many people for the responsibilities of the week. So you would narrow that down. Those 800 people would come to work for that one week, and they would cast lots. And if you received, if you received a certain lot, then you had a certain responsibility. And there would be like 56 people out of the 800 that would ever do the work. 
So the chances of you getting to be the one to offer incense on the altar inside the temple, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity if it ever happened at all. So Zacharias has been a priest year after year, and he's been selected to do other things, but he's never been selected to go into the temple of God, to go before the great veil where the altar of incense is, to put a pinch of incense, and as the smoke is curling up to the top of the temple, he would offer prayers on behalf of the nation to, to the one true God. And that is the day it happened. He gets the lot, and they say, Zacharias, you offer incense at the altar today. So this is what's happening. Verse 6. The Bible tells us a little bit about their character. And they were both righteous before God. Do you know how we receive righteousness before God? It is not by works. The fact that they are righteous before God means that they are, their standing, their position before God is one that is right. Now, all of us have sinned against God and fallen short of his glory. But in the Old Testament, God said, if you want to be right with me, you need to have faith in me. You need to trust me. And you need to offer a substitute, realizing that these animal substitute sacrifices will never, will never take your sin away. They will only cover your sin. You have to trust that I will send someone, the Messiah, who will take away your sin. So Zacharias and Elizabeth believe. They trust God. They know that they have sinned against God. They know that this animal has covered their sin, the death of a substitute, and that now they can fellowship with God. Until they sin again, then they offer another animal. Then they offer another animal. But they believe one day God will send the Messiah who will take away their sin. So they have this righteous standing before God. Can I tell you something else that amazes me? When we left Jeremiah, the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem. The Jewish people are up in Babylon. Others are down in Egypt. And 400 years go by. Scholars call them 400 silent years. Not because everybody sits in their house and reads all day. They're 400 silent years because for 400 years from the days of Malachi, God doesn't speak. He, there's, no, there's no new prophetic word. He doesn't show up with visions or angels or anything. God has not spoken to his children for 400 years. And through all of the Medo-Persian Empire, then Philip of Macedon takes over the West, and then they or the Persians kill Philip of Macedon, and Alexander the Great takes over, and then Alexander the Great conquers the whole world in the name of Greece, and brings Greece culture and Greek ideology and everything. Then he's dying at 32, and his empire splits to four generals, uh, Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Then the eighth king of the Seleucids, Antiochus IV, ravages the Jewish people in the temple. And then the Hasmonean age comes, and Mattathias, Maccabee, with his son Judas, take over the temple and cleanse the temple and start the Hanukkah celebration with the oil and all of that. Oh, and then Pompey comes in 63 BC and conquers Jerusalem and takes over the world with the Roman Empire. In the midst of all of these wars and battles and raising families, God has a string of believers through it all. Is that amazing? We leave the Jewish people in Babylon and Egypt with Jeremiah, and 400 some years later, 
there's still believers in, in Jehovah, in Yahweh. There's still faithful children of God on this earth. Now, we're living in the days of a Biden presidency, a Putin Russia, uh, of, um, we've got um, King Charles III on the throne in England now. We're living in the days of all of this, but that's just the historical setting. Do you want to know what's going on that's really significant? You sitting here today. God sees this as the significance. Who, who cares about an obscure priest in the hill country of Judah that's old, that can't have children with his wife? Who cares about them? God does. God cares about them. And you know what's, be, what's most significant is your ministry here in this very local church. God values that, and he considers it a, a, an absolutely great thing. And the very fact that we have gone through all of human history and the last 2,000 years of the church age, the church is still on earth. And you are part of that little remnant of believers faithfully reading your word, serving Jesus, caring for the church, reaching the last. You're just part of the passing on of the baton from generation to generation. Isn't that amazing? I, I think it's amazing that we are introduced to this couple that believes in Jesus. And it says, as a result of being righteous before God, here's how it played out in their lives. Verse 6, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. That's not how they were saved. That was a result of their salvation. Because they were righteous before God positionally, then they were living it out with right behavior. And that's always the order. We are justified by God through faith alone first. Then with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to live out the life, the right life in Jesus. Well, I'm going to close with this. Verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. There was no greater burden on a Jewish family than not having children. Because there was an expectation that, could my child be the Messiah? Would God use my child? And if you couldn't have children, it was a reproach. Today, people kind of brag about it. Ha, I don't have children. I don't, I'm not tied down or whatever. Not so in the, in the biblical days with the nation of Israel. To not have a child was a reproach. People thought you must have been cursed by God or something. And so you have this couple who, with the joy of the Lord in their hearts, are also suffering the greatest trial ever. They've gone their whole life. Can you imagine? Their hands have done many, much work, gardening, cooking, serving at the temple. And now they've got tired eyes and wrinkled faces and worn hands that'll never hold a little baby but they're still serving the Lord. They're still serving the Lord. And that is the norm, isn't it? When you believe in Jesus, it's not like everything is perfect and rosy. It's like you've got the joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord, and yet at the same time, you, have, you can have lifelong afflictions, trouble upon trouble upon trouble. And that doesn't, that's not abnormal. That's just, that's just par for the course. And then, of course, he goes to burn incense and an angel appears. The last time an angel appeared in the Bible was to a prophet named Zacharias. 400 some years later, an angel shows up to an obscure priest named Zacharias. Well, what applications can we have? First of all, here's my first one. Luke is a doctor. And just by that very fact, you can almost tell that he loves people. You will find 
In the book of Luke, he names names all over the place. Just keep track as you read it. He's, he's concerned about names and people. So you and I, we need to look at the church family particularly and, and just look and see that people in our church have real needs. We have names and personalities and we all have concerns and issues going on. And it's easy just to come and to go and just to you know say, well, I'm here and I'm gone. But our church isn't like that. Like when one hurts in the church, we all hurt. When, one's, when one rejoices, we all rejoice. So we can't lose that, that personal touch we have as a church. And, and Luke, he's great about just the human relationships are, are huge in, in Luke's book. Um, secondly, do you want to know the, one of the most repeated, this is the word that's repeated more in Luke than in any other book of the Bible. It is the, the word joy. Joy. Rejoicing, joy. It's even it's more well because Philippians is such a short book. It's it's found more often in Luke. There, Luke wants us to know that there's a joy in knowing Jesus. There's a joy in walking with Jesus and loving Him. Um, remember Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus came down from the tree. How? Rejoicing. You know his sins had been paid. He he had faith in in Jesus, and Jesus was coming to his house. Um, in the parables, there's joy over a lost sheep. There's joy over what? A lost coin. There's joy over a lost son. It's just joy, joy, joy. You cannot, you cannot follow the life of Jesus without coming away with some joy. This person's lame. They're healed. Joy. This person's dead. They're alive. Joy. It's just Cleopas and his partner, I believe it's his wife, walking on the road to Emmaus. They're downcast. There's been a crucifixion. Jesus died, and now he's risen from the dead, and they're walking away with their heads hung low, and they're like, it's been the worst day of our lives. We thought Jesus was the one, and now he's dead. And Jesus talks to them and reveals himself in the scriptures, and, and, they, and the, the joy of the Lord burns in their heart. They, they say to one another, didn't our hearts burn with fire when Jesus was talking to us? So joy, if anything... I want you to be happy in Jesus. I want you to be satisfied and content knowing Jesus and and loving him. And then third, I want you to be certain, as Luke wants you to be certain, of the love and grace of Jesus. You need to be certain of this. You need to be assured that God loves you, his grace is sufficient, and you, by faith in him, are his child. Well, that's just our introduction, and we'll get more into the birth of John and all of that um, next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the gospel of Luke that as we now turn to the pages of scripture and we see the forerunner being born, then soon Jesus will be born in the text, and we will watch and watch and, and with anticipation and joy see everything that Jesus does as he cares for his people, as he ministers to his children. I thank you, Father, for his death on the cross on our place, for our sins, and for his resurrection. And I pray that we would have certainty of these things about Jesus that are written, and that we would have joy, that we would be fascinated by the life of Jesus. Because someday we will see him face to face, and we will walk in heaven by this Jesus who is risen from the dead, our Savior. We will maybe hold his hand and we will, we will look into his eyes and we will hear his voice. This Jesus is real. He is real humanity and real deity. And we're thankful for this narrative. 
And so may it produce joy in us. May the word of God bring cleansing to our life as we realize that because of our position in Christ, you want us to walk a certain way, be a certain kind of people. And so we pray for all of these, these things to happen in our pursuit of Jesus. For the name and the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I hope you all have a great afternoon. We will have choir at 5. Um, I know I talked to Melissa about maybe not having it because of the busy week we had last week. But I thought if we don't have choir, then it seems like we have it, then we don't, then we have it. And then there's just no consistency. So I'm willing to be here so we can practice some new music and be ready with it. So if you are able to make it to choir at 5, that would be great. And we'll just um, see if, if, the, if that's what we want to do and continue with the choir. It's, it's entirely up to the choir, but I sure am happy to be here and to do that. So God bless you all. Have a great afternoon.